0: It's the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma.
1: Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley. And today I am honored to be with Jay Schiffman. Jay, welcome.
0: Well, thanks so much uh, for having me, Jill. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, it's awesome to have you. So let me tell you a little bit about Jay. Jay is an open book, a vulnerable storyteller, a stigma destroying speaker and a podcast and event host. He holds a BA in psychology from Northern Kentucky University and has a decade of lived and professional experience in the field. Jay has put numerous hours of independent learning, acquiring certifications in mental health, substance abuse and addiction and drug policy. He lives in Philadelphia, with his wife, Lauren, and their dog, Nell. So, Jay, the dog, Nell. What's Nell yes. like?
0: Uh, she is actually laying here right in front of me as I record this. Uh, she is uh, she's she's a lot of fun. She's very loving. Uh, she is a, a setter mix, uh, about three years old, and uh, she she loves Philadelphia. She, she is probably the happiest of all three of us to be here in, in this city. <laughs> she loved to get out and walk a lot. She does. And, and, and before we moved here, which was about two months ago from when we'd record this, my wife and I were uh, living in Charleston, South Carolina with Nell in a, a small two bedroom uh, apartment. And, and Nell did not like it because we were everywhere. We, every time she turned around, yeah. we were right there with her. And, and here she gets the there's a lot of room that she can go hide and, and lay down and sleep all day, which is her favorite thing. So uh, this is this is much better for her.
1: Nice. Well, I have a mini Schnauzer Sheltie who's completely useless named Ramsey and is a runner anytime we open the doors. So we have to be careful. So he's 12 years old and still a runner.
0: Damn. Well, it's nice to hear you still got the energy in him.
1: (laughs) He does. He does. He hasn't aged. So tell us something about yourself that was not covered in the bio besides life with Nell.
0: Oh, man, I could talk about Nell all day. Uh, so so, you know, I, I do a lot of these. And I think that uh, the, the part of of my or my identity that doesn't I, I don't get to talk about uh, as much, I think, is the the hands on work that I really like doing in the the substance misuse uh, and, and addiction world. You know, a, a lot of my the, the interviews around my work. Are Obviously, the experience I went through and also sort of big picture topics, which are incredibly important. I don't want to minimize the importance of discussing how uh, sort of big picture changes. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of what I really, truly enjoy doing is kind of, you know, get my hands dirty kind of work. And uh, recently, I, w- I was uh, in here in Philadelphia in a neighborhood called Kensington, which has a, a very high a uh, number of, of people experiencing homelessness and and struggling with substance misuse. And, you know, just getting to go around and talk to some of these folks and and, and hand out uh, Narcan, which is the uh, opioid overdose reversing drug uh, mm-hmm. and water and food, and, and just hear more about their experience. You know, there's an, an old adage, of course, that it's hard to hate up close. And I just wish more people would take the time to do this because I, I would have to spend such so much less time dispelling myths and and, Absolutely. and correcting them on a lot of the incorrect and, and hurtful and hateful uh feelings they have towards those of us in the, in the substance misuse and addiction community if they would just walk you know around with me for for half an hour for an hour and talk yeah. to some of these people
1: I totally agree. I worked in an area of town that was um, flanked by the homeless shelters, so a lot of unhomed, a lot of addicted, um, some mental illness. And you know I think I think we tend to think of people that are in that situation if we're not as them, you know, those yeah. people. And we kind of separate ourselves mentally and, and geographically and categorize in a really unhelpful way.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point Joe the the otherizing is is so harmful uh, this yesterday I was doing outreach work in this neighborhood with a it's with a group that I, I'm a part of here uh, called savage sisters here in Philadelphia I'm, I'm a board member great name. and we're walking around yeah the are the the, the the woman who found it is is uh, if you met her you'd be like yeah savage that that makes sense <laughs> um, so we're walking around and there's a protest going on uh, some residents of this neighborhood who want these people out of their neighborhood and the sign said things like the one that that stuck with me was um if we don't want them here take them with you and it's like oh. it, 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 it that the word them is really what hurts me there and really what sticks with me there because to those of us who do this work it's always us right mm-hmm. it, it, it's is there a separation sure i am so privileged not to be experiencing homelessness i am so privileged to be in recovery um but but at the same time we're, we're still people these are still our brothers and sisters our neighbors and, and so there isn't a theming uh, an otherizing rising mm-hmm. uh, those people and uh experience for those of us who really care about this and and the minute that you're able to break down that wall it's really yeah. hard to want to do things like just and and by the way, the people who are protesting there's no plans, there's no we want you them to be in housing, we, we just want, want them, them to get away. the services they deserve, right? Exactly. Right. It's just we want them gone. Well, instead of spending your time out there trying to protest homeless people, what if you protest the city of Philadelphia for allowing the situation to happen, right? Right? You what know, what what a, what a, what a misguided uh, a, a, a protest that you have going on, if your target is the victim of this situation, and not the politicians who have put in place these policies.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I didn't realize until I until I kind of worked in the in in that area of the community, the debate between gentrification and whether or not we rebuild a community and make it nicer. So people who are more affluent will move in and make it a nicer area. Or do we try to improve the services for people who already live there? I didn't realize that that debate existed.
0: You know that's such a great point and joe you and i could do a completely different interview where we just talk about this yeah um I, I i was really lucky when i lived in cincinnati ohio where i'm from i was lucky to be on a board for a neighborhood association and and it's such a fine line to walk because there really isn't a way to pit an us versus them because there isn't like developers largely are an an issue because obviously they have their goals are financial. and, And when that's the case, quite frankly, I don't really care about who is going to be, you know, living there. They just want the, right. the best bang for their buck. But at the same time, I worked with a lot of incredible developers who wanted the best for the people in the neighborhood. So you couldn't just say all developers or something like that, but, but largely overall the, the policies that are in place and, and the uh, sort of rewards for development do not benefit a, a community that is already, Uh, proud of itself. It it may have issues, but cleaning it up is not a thing that is going to um inspire the the, the city to get behind it or, or developing right. or something like that and and so it's really hard to get even government dollars to do a lot of these services that need to be done but the minute that uh, somebody wants to come in and get a tax break for completely you know cleaning up a block and by mm-hmm. tearing everything down and rebuilding they're gonna get all that they want because the city sees a dollar sign with that so it's super difficult Difficult. And Jill, there are people that are 10 times smarter than you and me wrestling with this <laughs> issue. And, um, you know, it is it's it is really hard to watch it happen. And, you know, being the proverbial sort of person chained in front of the, the bulldozer and saying, right. please don't tear this down. Please try to build with us instead.
1: Well, unfortunately, when we start thinking of an ROI or a return on of our investment in financial terms only, um, there's some losers in that situation. Somebody's gonna lose out. And um yeah, I think we yeah. yeah so we're off on a we're is, off on a rabbit trail here, but <laughs> but you're right, we could do a whole a whole conversation on that. So let's switch back to you, Jay, and tell me a little bit about um, growing up. where'd you grow up and what was that all like?
0: Yeah, so I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, we, we grew up uh, in, a, in a small suburb about 20 minutes north of downtown. uh, I'm the oldest of four boys. Uh, Both my parents were in the household. My grandparents lived walking distance. Um, So it was it was sort of this idyllic late 80s 90s childhood, you know, um, and, and luckily for me and, and my brothers, um, there is a family business, uh, that, that my family, my, on my mother's side has been involved with, uh, three generations now that, that my dad took over in the early 2000s. So, uh, we were incredibly privileged to never have to worry about not having a roof over our head, not, a, mm-hmm. not worrying about where the, the next meal was going to come from. And, and because of that, you know, uh, I I like to say that that I, I went to private school, and I like to say that that you know a lot of the people I was going to school with were were born on home plate, thinking that they had hit a home run. You know, I was born <laughs> at shortstop and was reminded every single day that I had not hit a double or a triple. That that you know it was because of my family that where I was. Yeah. So, so, there really was a um uh, and this is actually something I was home not long ago, as you and I were talking about before this, doing a TED talk, and my dad and I had a chance that we were in the car together for about three hours going to visit my grandmother who who now lived out out of the city, and we were talking about this about how you know, on interviews i I always make sure to give my parents that that props of not being like so many of the other well-off kids that I grew up with who, who thought that, you know, they were on top of the world and that they had done something to earn that instead, you know, making sure that my brothers and I knew, uh, we are incredibly, we, we were told we were privileged before that word was in vogue, you know? Yeah. And, And I'm very thankful for that. What, what is
1: family business?
0: It's called Michaelman. They are a, um a, a a chemical manufacturing company that is focused on sustainability both for uh the the planet and for uh the people of our of, of our family, obviously. So we were we've always been um, you know, they make a water-based chemicals instead of uh the traditional more harmful based chemicals. Uh the best example I can give is that if you remember, and you and I are a little bit older now, Jill, but but if any of the listeners <laughs> Shh, don't uh, tell anybody that <laughs> <laughs> well, if they remember back in the in the nineties when um dixie cups you know you would you would have them in your bathroom for for yep. drinking water or whatever if you went to your dentist uh the waxy feeling of a dixie cup that was our our family's business so okay um, that again that is that is dating myself here by about 20 years uh or more than that but um that that's the best example i can give okay
1: so they're a manufacturer not like a blend and repack they're just they they make the stuff
0: they do, and then it goes on to somebody else who who uses it in their pro in their products, and you know whatever the case is.
1: I worked in the '90s. I worked for a company that was an international blend and repack um, com- chemical company. So, um, so that's I learned that industry just small just world a little bit. Small world, yeah. <laughs> so you had a major happening in 2010. Can you tell me about that?
0: <laughs> so, so it was sort of. To, to put this all in context it, it, the year summer of 2009 through the summer of 2010 was one of 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 a lot of sort of upheaval and in, in my life uh i was 23 going on 24. um i it, it was diagnosed with adhd as a preteen in the late 90s and and, and for Uh, the context here, this was at a time when that diagnosis had gone from uh, roughly 300,000 kids when I was born in the mid 80s, uh, to about 2 million kids in the late 90s. So It it exploded. And of course, with that came a lot of new and experimental drugs and um, you know, we now know, of course, that that putting uh, kids as young as in my case, 11, on basically, let's be honest here, it, it's the pharmaceutical equivalent of meth. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's going to have side effects. And, and uh, you know, especially when the kid is going through puberty, as I as I was. And unfortunately for me, my therapist saw that, and um, even though he knew that I was also, you know, a guy who struggled with depression, anxiety, and OCD, he gave all of this a new name, all, all that he was seeing, and he called it bipolar disorder, uh, it was not, uh, <laughs> it was a bunch of other things. Oh. And uh, so over the next decade, um, you know, being put on medication for this, my my sort of sense of self and my my condition deteriorated. Uh, to the point where, by my early twenties, uh, about twenty twenty one, I am on over five different medications every day. I am fully addicted to all of them, and I and I mean that in the medical mm. sense of that word. Right, it's completely uh, dependent, c- completely physically, mentally dependent on these these medications. Uh, so, uh, you know, to to kind of help people understand what that means for me at this time is if I wake up and don't immediately take a handful of pills, I will begin to go through a withdrawal. Um, And withdrawal is just awful. Uh, And so there were many mornings where I wasn't fast enough. And I would uh, then spend the next hour curled around my my toilet bowl. So uh, that was my life for about two years and uh, about two to three years. And in the summer of 2009, I uh, sort of hit a uh, hit a tipping point. Um, I I had just been uh, following a band around the country for about six weeks and and sort of going from music festival to music festival. And of course, there I was not (laughs) like a weirdo. I wasn't the outsider. I was the norm at these things. Right. And so it it was very it was was very peaceful to me. It was very like homecoming to me. But then I go home and I have this realization that like if the only place I'm happy is sort of at these like festivals around like minded people, and you add with that the fact that remember at this time i don't think i'm struggling with addiction i think that i have bipolar disorder and uh i'm not only not getting better after five years of or plus six years of taking all this medication i'm getting worse so uh i lost hope and in august of 2009 i attempted suicide twice in a two-day span the second day uh, i overdosed I, i succeeded In in, um, you know, hitting a point with these, the medication that, you know, if it not been for medical intervention, I would have died.
1: Mm.
0: Excuse me. So, oh, sort of put all of the next year in a very short span. I I go through overdose. And the last thing I remember that night is being uh, handcuffed and let out of my house by a police officer because that's how we treat people going through a crisis.
1: Wait, how did that happen?
0: Uh people that love me very much called 911. Um the neck and, and like I said, I, I opened the door. I'm living in I'm I own my, my own house, but my entire my house has become sort of a drug den by this point. And everybody I'm living with obviously freaks out. And he's like, I'm here for Jay. He arrests me. He didn't arrest me because I can go to the, the station, but he turns me around, puts me in handcuffs, and leads me out of my house. Wow. And uh, It's the last thing I remember. Is he slams me hard into the side of his car, and I bang my head on on the car, and then he grabs me again by the head and just shoves me into the back seat. Um, that's the last thing I remember was was this physical altercation with this cop. Oh my god! Uh, then I I'm taken to a hospital where I'm handcuffed to a bed because I'm going through withdrawal, and they're I don't know what they're afraid of, but but they were afraid of something. So uh, that night I'm I'm monitored that I wake up the next day in a lockdown unit, the kind you see on TV, you know, no, no shoelaces, no belt, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Spend, spend three weeks there. Um, Released to my parents who then send me to a long-term care facility, what we would have called a mental institution 50 years ago in the Berkshires. Uh, And I spend three months there. And it's there that I finally realized by meeting people with bipolar disorder and people struggling with addiction, that you don't have bipolar, (laughs) I don't have bipolar, I am struggling, I'm addicted to these medications. So I check myself out on on New Year's Eve of 2009. And uh, eventually make it over the next week um, to Arizona, where I live with my grandmother and grandfather, uh, my dad's parents going, and I go through what's called step down detox. And for your uh-huh. listeners who are not med- in the medical field, um, we all know cold turkey, right? But unfortunately, right. you know, cold turkey that's kills dangerous. A lot of people, very dangerous. Um, if you don't, if you try to do it at home, the chances of you surviving are, are you know, they're they're okay, but they're not. They're far from one hundred percent. And unfortunately, I had so much in my system, so many drugs that I couldn't just stop. The combined withdrawal would have actually killed me. So it took me almost four months to, to go through this step down detox where I take a little bit less every day.
1: So it's like um, doctor, doctor, super, supervised, and they just kind of titrate down your medications. Is that what it is?
0: so yeah it was a therapist supervised and i would see her every couple of weeks and say you know this is sort of the trajectory i'm on and she would say either great keep going or you know maybe slow down a little bit or you can probably speed up a little bit okay Um, but it was very slow very slow going um and and finally in the spring of 2010 i had nothing left in my system for the first time in over a decade and that's when i restarted you know my quest for for health and uh started restarted building my life
1: Did when you were at the Berkshires, did they do anything diagnostically to help you understand? Okay, you don't have, you don't have bipolar, but you do have this other stuff going on.
0: That is a wonderful question, and that's one I don't get asked a lot. And the answer is no, Um, unfortunately. Yeah. So I, 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 and I'll say all this because, and and I want to preface this by saying, uh, if this sounds like far fetched, yeah, I'm with you. Luckily for me, um, about five years ago, I went on a quest to get as many of my records as possible. Um, And you would be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be, at how hard that was. Uh, It took a lot of work. Um, Some of the places literally destroyed it. Um, One place claimed they gave me everything, uh, and it's maybe 10% of what I know was there. I don't know if they still have it or if they're going to claim they lost it. I don't know what the case is. Um, I, I was able to get my, some of my, my records from CVS, but Walgreens denied me and I just didn't want to fight that one. Uh, so, so I got a a lawyer on my side who helped me get my records from the, the mental institution in the Berkshires. And I've been able to read all of my doctor's notes. And what's so startling is that, uh, I went to see, I had two different therapists in the center for over the three months. Um, there was a complete agreement that there were uh, more questions than answers. They weren't sure I had bipolar. None of them were willing to go against my therapist from home and say, definitively, he does not have this. Uh, they were willing to say in these notes, you know, this doesn't seem right, or this is confusing, or we're not sure about this. Um, the, the, the most startling one was the I, I went into my therapist's office one day and I said, you know, I think what's best for me is getting off all these medications. And he said, no, uh, the only thing that only way he was willing to to do that is if I agreed to um, get off everything and then start with new medication. I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to see how I could live without this medication. And I figured, you know, if I'm stuck in a mental institution, this is the best place to try not being on medication.
1: Right.
0: But in his notes, he 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 like comments about how interesting of an idea this is, um, but that he's against doing it, and 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 uh, it's it's just it's really fascinating reading all of this, and, and now of course with hindsight being twenty twenty of them <laughs> standing in the way of what really needed to be done. Which Absolutely, was I mean, that just medication. that
1: to me, I hear that. And that sounds like completely impotent treatment. I mean, if you're going to be and, and I'm just going from my own lived in experience where being in a mental mental institution for three months, diagnostics were the driving force. Like, let's figure out what's going on with you. So I can't imagine being in a place for three months and they're just like, eh, I don't know.
0: <laughs> you know, the 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 style of this of this center was much longer term thinking. So there was a lot of the sort of old school therapy style of break them down to build them up going on. Um, I talk about this a lot that if you've seen that, that scene in one flew over the cuckoo's nest where they sit around in a circle and just bash on each other Mm -hmm. uh, that happened, you know, with me. Uh, Luckily for me, I was only the center of that once. Uh, But there were other I I think the best story I can tell is there's only four things you're not allowed to do in this center and it's sex, drugs, drinking and fighting. And I almost got kicked out after uh, about six weeks because uh, I lost it on a guy who was just being so horrible to somebody in one of those settings that we were in each other's face ready to fight and that they hadn't pulled me away from him. I was going to take a swing. Uh, because I just couldn't get on board with this being a healthy thing that we all sit around and just tear each other apart. Um, And like I said, it wasn't even me that they were tearing apart. I just couldn't take this. So no, there was not a lot of diagnostic work going on. There was more, you know, the goal was maybe, I don't know, three years from now you can return to society kind of thinking. Wow. Uh, So 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 it really was not, Yeah.
1: so by checking yourself out going through this step down treatment you end up do you, did you feel better or more like yourself or did you feel like you needed more treatment after you were you were off of everything what did you
0: do so that's another great question we have this incorrect sort of thinking around people entering recovery that like they get off the drugs and then hooray, they're, they're good now. Uh, it took me five years to feel whole. Yeah, I knew when I got off of it, I felt so much better immediately that I knew I was on the right path. But it took me five whole years to really feel like my maturity, my my physical self, my mental self, all of that had sort of caught up with each other. And um, and and that is coincidentally when I finally was open to telling my story and talking about this experience, uh, it took me you know until until that that point to really feel comfortable enough to be able to say, you know this is behind me that I, I am while I may always be in recovery and not recovered, uh, I am healed in in that mm-hmm. sense
1: mm-hmm. What do you think the um the differences, or is there a difference in addiction to prescription drugs versus street drugs? Is there, is there a difference between the two?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, of course there's differences in every, every, uh, outlet of that addiction. Uh, you know, whether it's, it's the differences in, in literal drugs or, or, or in uh, something, you know, an action like sex addiction or porn Mm -hmm. addiction or uh, working out addiction, you know, of course there's, there's always a difference, but it's really more about how we treat the people. That is the biggest difference of all. You know, I, I, I have people that I care about who have caffeine addictions And, you know, nobody really cares. (laughs) It's it's, in fact, there are some industries where it's like, this is a prerequisite, you know, having this caffeine addiction. Um, I have, I know people who have such a working out addiction, they can't hold jobs. And of course we're like, oh, that's a little quirky, but we don't, we don't force them. We don't do like, uh, you know, we don't force them into treatment. We don't, we don't uh, tell them how it's impacting our lives. But when it comes to drugs, we're so quick to judge.
1: Yeah. And even within categories, like if you just talk about process addictions, you know, somebody who has a sex addiction is considered a way worse person than someone who has a shopping addiction. Like one is more, more socially acceptable than, than the other.
0: Definitely. Couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah. So in the midst of all of this, you became a mental health advocate. Why did that happen?
0: Yeah. So in 2015, I, uh, told my story on stage for the first time and it was a very cathartic experience for me. Uh, I, I, the, the, the way that I was embraced was incredibly meaningful, but more than anything the the feeling of a weight being lifted off my, off myself was incredible. Mm-hmm. And I felt very charged to start doing this work, uh, sort of the realization that I my as as a white man in this country and a wealthy white man, I have the privilege of I'm not going to lose a lot by by speaking out about things that have stigma attached them. And, And you know, I can get by if if you know, people push back and I lose my job or something, which of course never happened, because that's ridiculous. But but that was my thinking at the time. And so I started doing this work on the side for for a couple of years, um, doing a lot of speaking, some one-on-one work uh, with people that were struggling or recently into recovery. And in 2019, I decided to leave my career behind and do this work full time. And uh, so now I've been doing that for two and a half years, um, a lot of speaking, storytelling. I I have a podcast about this work. I was doing a lot of coaching for a while, And then quite frankly, I just, I don't have the time. I'm doing Mm -hmm. enough of this, which I think is really important. And uh, I I don't, I I didn't want to take away from uh, helping others and stigma and promoting other voices. Uh, And so I still do a little bit of one-on-one work. If it's someone who really, you know, a a friend of a friend or a friend of a family reaches out, that's the kind of coaching work I'm doing now. But um, a lot of my my work is about helping to end stigma and promote honest and fact based education around the issues of mental health, substance misuse and recovery. What do and drug you use and policy.
1: If you could take um, the top three stigmas around mental illness, what would you say <laughs> they are?
0: Yeah, wow. Um, so I, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which I think is really important. And then just the othering, I understand where that comes from because it's kind of a there, but, but by the grace of God go I feeling, right? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and that causes people to sort of, so let's so put this a different way fear is a really motivating thing. Uh, uh, force in people's lives. And there is a bit of fear when you see someone struggling with their mental health, you know, issues like that cross all of these superficial boundaries we've created for ourselves and and so when when it's something that we can point to another group and go oh that only happens to them there's a little bit less fear there right you feel safer but when you see struggles of mental health that could get anybody there's this desire for in ourselves to say oh but that'll never happen to me Mm -hmm. and because of that, you get such a strong pushback on people who are struggling and you get such a strong otherization. I, again, I want to keep coming back to what you said that's so important. This The fact is, if you can embrace that fear and say, God, this really scares me. Right. But but knowing where that fear comes from and and dealing with it instead of allowing it to motivate your thinking on an issue that's just so healthy. And it would allow us to yeah. to be so much more compassionate towards those struggling.
1: Yeah. I think the, the empathy thing is, is huge when you sit, you know, when you, you know, the old, you know, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. But right. if you, if you truly, truly do that as, as an empath, it makes a huge difference. So, um, so you mentioned your podcast, you named your podcast, choose your own struggle. Why did you name it that?
0: Yeah, so Choose Your Struggle is the name of my business. Um, and, and it's it's also sort of my personal brand. Uh, essentially, what it means is uh, it goes back to to a realization I had that when I was at my worst, again, back in 2008, 2009, 2010, I didn't really get to choose what I struggled for every day, because just getting up and, and avoiding withdrawals and trying to be a functional member of, of society, that was my struggle every single day. And it sort of helped me realize that once I was in recovery and was able to choose again what I was going to struggle for every day, other people have very similar situations that happen to them. And sometimes you don't get to choose anymore. Life has taken Mm. away your ability to choose. And so choose your struggle is just like it's more of a it's a reminder that there are things we can choose. There are decisions that we can make for ourselves every day, no matter what position you're in, that can help you Uh, take back your life and set your own goals um, and and also help others in the process.
1: That's great perspective. So what is, what is the rock bottom stories that you tell?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So rock bottom storytellers is a virtual storytelling event that I started uh, in January and Uh, It's a it's a once a quarter virtual event, although the goal obviously after once COVID is completely over is to have it in, in person too, but it's four people coming together on online one at a time telling their their rock bottom story. And the goal of this is to help number one, normalize struggling period, but also mm-hmm. to normalize talking about struggle. And good. so unlike the sort of V shape stories that that, you know, people like me who get paid good money to speak tell all the time, we tell U shapes where we sit at the bottom for a little bit, and help people kind of go there with us. And, and the first two events have been I mean, incredibly successful, uh, so many great stories, you know, uh, over a thousand people combined between the two events have tuned in and it's just been, it's, it's, it's been so healthy. And so uh, such an amazing experience for me to be able to promote other voices and other stories.
1: Well, and I'm sure that that your participants have that same feeling you did when you started telling your story that there's a weight lifted. It's like, not only am I not the only one, but I get to tell my story and I'm at a place where I where I can. And that's a gift in and of itself.
0: You you could not be more right. It's I remembered that moment so clearly and it was so healthy and and helpful for me that I make sure at every rock bottom, at least one of the people has never told a story before. Because yeah. I want them to have the opportunity that I had back in 2015. And and yes, two-way person, I mean, all eight of the people who have spoken so far have have told me that it was such an incredible experience for them. But those two people each time both of them are now heading in this direction where they're telling their story more. And to me, that's the, I mean, that there's no better reward than seeing.
1: Right. That's so empowering. Definitely. So what part does spirituality play in healing and processing trauma and um, being in recovery?
0: That is a great question. And I think the answer is different for every person. I know that a lot of people in recovery cite, some sort of a higher power, whether you uh, truly believe in a, in a religion or just the interconnectedness, I, I it, it's mm-hmm. very, very common uh, for, for people. Now, me personally, I didn't have a big spiritual moment from in, in entering recovery. Uh, my my sort of rock bottom moment included a moment of feeling complete, uh, sort of spiritual helplessness, if that makes sense that yes, that I reached out to a higher power and got nothing in return. Mm -hmm. And and that was such a traumatic moment for me. because, you know, of course, we hear the stories all the time from people in their rock bottom moments about that's when they truly felt the most connected. And I didn't have that. And so because of that, that night was even more difficult for me than it already was.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, more more alone. Um, Yes. yes, Right. Yeah, definitely. Well, just in closing, I I feel like there's a million things we could keep talking about and not run (laughs) out of topics. But what if you could sum it up, what do you most want people to learn from your life?
0: Oh, man. Well, there's a couple of things that I like to to say to people that if they learned anything from my story, number one, uh, it is get us always get a second opinion. Uh, You know, when you think about physical issues, we go to our doctor and God forbid your doctor diagnose you with cancer, right? You're going to get a second, third and fourth opinion every step of the way. And yet when it comes to mental health, a lot of the times people kind of just go Oh, God, that's a serious diagnosis. What do we do? You know, there's no, there's no, okay, let me go talk to another therapist and see if they agree with this. Or is, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you want to give me pills? Is it possible? I can do some kind of treatment instead? you know, there isn't a lot of those conversations. And, and it is for some and those people are incredible. But but they are the vast minority. And so always getting a second opinion when you get a serious diagnosis is a very important uh, very important notion to take away from my story but i think even more important is the idea that you need to reach out to others when you're in a moment of crisis. I didn't. And I am very lucky that, that I lived through my uh, two suicide attempts and my overdose. Uh, very lucky. Um, You know, I don't, I don't know what the odds makers would put on that, but, but living through two suicides in two days and an overdose, pretty small. You've got
1: a basement, pretty small odds
0: yeah i would say i wouldn't bet on that there's there's not an amount of money in the world that you should put on that bet um but i i wish i had reached out to the people in my life who love me in that moment instead and i didn't so i say this whenever i speak if you are struggling if you know someone who is reach out there are people in your life who love you and will be there for you and if you truly think that there's not reach out to me i i will i will be there for you because there's a saying those of us who do this work that we'd rather spend two hours listening to you today than two hours at your funeral tomorrow. Yep, so absolutely. I was just
1: going to say that. I was just going to say It's that. a good line, right? <laughs> yeah. So, Jay, how do people uh, listen to your podcast and the Choose Your Struggle podcast, Rock Bottom Stories, all your work? How do they get, get a hold of you?
0: Yeah. So, I'm Jay Schiffman, J A Y S H I F M A N, or Choose Your Struggle on all social media. Um, the, 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 the virtual storytelling events go live on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn and YouTube. The, the podcast, Choose Your Struggle is anywhere you get your podcast. I'm celebrating my 100th episode, um, uh, January. uh, Thank you. uh, On June 21st. Um and uh it's going strong, so please check it out. I'd really appreciate it. And reach out. I, I sincerely mean that. Uh the easiest way to reach out is to go to my website, which is jshiftman.com and go to the contact me page. I or a member of my team will see that and, and we'll we'll get in touch. Um, but I, I mean that from uh, honestly. I, that's not just a guy on here t- saying a thing. You know, I've had people reach out to me over TikTok, and, and I, I wouldn't recommend it. I always forget that I have a TikTok, so I don't check it as often <laughs> as I should. I should, but, but you know, if, if that's how the way you feel comfortable, reach out to me over TikTok, and I'll eventually yeah. see it. So uh, please reach out.
1: Great, and we will link all this in the show notes. Um, Jay, it's it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for the conversation.
0: Thank you, Jill. It's been, it's been great. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast today. You can follow Jill on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, jillreilly.author, and on Twitter, jillreillyauthor. Email jill at jillreilly.org.